You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, two weeks ago, we had a, a guest scholar come and do some joint events with us in Stanford University named Alan Jacobs, and uh, he recently came out with a book that's uh, got a, a lot of people, it's become sort of a bestseller called How to Think. And one of the things he talks about in that book, which he mentioned with us, is the concept of just giving something five minutes. That if uh, sometimes what happens is we hear something that we that at first blush we don't like is making us uncomfortable, that we are quick to zone out. I mean, just think of all the sort of internet troll activities or any blog post you've ever read and you read the first paragraph and you thought, I know what this thing is about. And then you go and you comment at the very bottom, but you haven't read the whole thing. You haven't given it five minutes when you do that. And so what I'm asking you tonight with my sermon is to, to give it five minutes. Okay, because the, 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 what I want to talk about at first blush uh, makes us uncomfortable. And uh, I wouldn't blame you if you were to sort of zone out or get angry up front, but I'm asking you to, to hang out with me beyond five minutes. And one of the reasons I wanted to read Joshua for this season, uh, for our preaching here at the five o'clock, is that this story uh, in Joshua makes many modern Americans uncomfortable because it deals with topics like God's wrath and judgment. So how can we... Um, reconcile a belief in God with these tough places in Scripture? How can we, 21st century Americans, reconcile a belief in God with these uh, tough places, especially in the Old Testament? The Scripture, by the way, that uh, Paul later calls God-breathed, and that later Jesus would interpret as about him, or as he says, concerning himself, and that we confess in the Nicene Creed when we say it that this same scripture has been spoken uh, uh, by the Holy Spirit through the prophets. Well, in our uh, contemporary age, many people tend to imagine God as either one of uh, two types of main descriptions. First, either a sort of doting grandparent who sort of winks and says, I'm sure it's all in good fun. You know, I'm sure everything's okay. And this is a sort of God who doesn't take sin too seriously and just wants uh, to love everyone. As uh, H. Richard Niebuhr, uh, a theologian of the earlier part of the 20th century, famously said, this is a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So that's the sort of um, the more soft image that we have of God in our day and age. Or on the other hand, people imagine uh, God as uh, an unpredictable grump with anger management issues. We sort of project an image of a human tyrant onto him. Uh, just think of what the uh, in the new atheist movement, maybe you've heard of that, uh, Richard Dawkins is one of the most famous uh, scholars. He says in his book, The God Delusion, and I mean, he's, he's probably talking about places like Joshua when he says this. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably, arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, 
a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Say that three times fast. So, you know, you've either got the sort of H. Richard Niebuhr description on the one hand or the Richard Dawkins description on the other, and usually that's the way that most people are talking about God, uh, and especially uh, in accord with someone like Richard Dawkins when they're imagining the God of the Old Testament. So when we're confronted with these passages of judgment, we either say, well, that, that can't be right. That, that can't be right. I think God is loving, so he wouldn't judge. This is the stuff of when we say things like, Jesus, meek and mild. Or if you think of uh, the Christmas hymn, Away in a Manger, No Crying He Makes. You know, this is just a, this sentimentality, basically. Or we reject God altogether. Uh, because even if he is real, I don't want to bother to get to know him if he's a God who would judge. Uh, and uh, I, I, I just I don't agree with that. And so even if he exists, I want nothing to do with him. Well, our passage today, especially verses 13, 14, and 15, uh, the latter half of our passage, is helpful for understanding uh, what is to come later in the book of Joshua and also for helpful for understanding Jesus Christ's second coming to judge the living and the dead. But let me first, before I really focus on uh, the, the latter half of our passage, let me address the uh, first several verses, which is not my emphasis, but I want to explain what's the, sort of the, the context of what's going on here. Uh, we see Israel is celebrating the Passover, and this is the, for the first time after they've crossed the Jordan River finally. Uh, we've skipped the preceding verses, which explain that the, the men, at least, of Israel are all circumcised. They haven't been as long as they've been uh, in the wilderness, most of them, except for guys like Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else is, is, is younger, and they haven't been circumcised, which means that for these people, this was probably the first time in their life that they're actually celebrating Passover, because circumcision was a requirement to celebrate it. And so in the Passover, they're remembering the deliverance of their parents and grandparents uh, from Egypt. And finally, on the other side of the Jordan River, the manna that was falling in the wilderness ceases to fall, and they're able to eat the fruit of their own land. And so this, this uh, information signifies for us a major turning point, a major turning point, basically, basically around verse 12. Uh, that their wilderness sojourn has just ended. Their time of being in the wilderness has just ended. You couple that with the crossing of the Jordan, and uh, this is an obvious book ending with the crossing of the Red Sea. You know, the Passover and the crossing on that side, and the Passover and the crossing on this side. And the man is gone, and they're eating the fruit of their own land. And so this is a, a new era. And after all of this, Joshua sees a man. Joshua sees a man with a drawn sword, and he has this encounter. Let me just read it to you again. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, 
Uh, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And so I hope that you see along the same theme of what I was saying, that this is bookending what happened back at the beginning of Exodus. I hope you see that this is Yahweh. This is Yahweh, this is God, the Lord, encountering Joshua in a similar way that he did with Moses back at the burning bush, uh, saying the same thing so that we might make that connection. Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. And we know that this is God and not just an angel, because unlike the angel uh, in Revelation, who stopped John uh, from worshiping him. Remember, John sees an angel and falls down similarly to Joshua, and the angel tells him he must stop. But here, when Joshua does this, he doesn't tell him to stop. He acknowledges that he is the Lord. And so the commander of the Lord's army uh, uh, is uh, what is known as the angel of God. The angel of God who went before the hosts or the army of Israel back at the Red Sea. This is uh, like when we sing that song, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, where we talk about Lord Sabaoth, which means the Lord of hosts. The commander of the Lord's army, meaning the commander of all the angelic forces and also of Israel, who are now his army. Uh, And he has come to guide Israel just as he did when he guided them out of the Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptian army. Well, who is the commander of the Lord's army? He is God himself. Some have even said that this is a sort of what's called a pre-incarnate vision, appearance of the Son or the Word of God. That this is a a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. In other words, this is Jesus in the Old Testament before he was called Jesus. And the commander of the Lord's army is carrying a sword, just as Jesus would say, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And what does a sword do? A sword divides. If you think the uh, interpretation that this uh, is God and even Jesus in the Old Testament is far-fetched, Well, this isn't the first time that God appeared to his people as if a man, nor will it be the last time. Just consider these examples. The Lord walking in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, one of the three men uh, who came to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, wrestling with Jacob, appearing to Gideon, seen by Isaiah at his calling, the fourth man in the furnace uh, in the book of Daniel, Paul's encounter at the road of Damascus, and John's vision and revelation. And here he is present with Joshua, just as he promised back in chapter 1 when he said, I will be with you. He is about to command Israel, not Joshua ultimately. You know, Joshua might be a four-star general, but he's the real five-star general who's come to to command uh, Israel in the conquest of Canaan, particularly coming with Jericho. And he has also uh, fulfilled his promise, but he's also acutely present for Israel, just as he would once again 
uh, say in Matthew chapter 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so here is the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, the Lord, present for Joshua, uh, about to command Israel to conquest Canaan. Let's, not, uh, let's now uh, take a, a much closer look at uh, what God tells Joshua. Now that we know who he is, let's take a closer look at what he says to Joshua, especially in uh, verse 14. First, Joshua goes up to him, not yet knowing who he is, and he asks him, are you for us or for you, are you for our adversaries? And he responds, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. This strange response is, is really important because it tells us that he's his, he's his own man, not necessarily on Israel's side or Jericho's, but any who will follow him are in the Lord's army and therefore on his side. Just as the dry bones in Ezekiel became a vast army after they heard the prophecy and had the Spirit breathed into, him, into them, so also any who are on the side of the Lord are also his, his vast army, meaning they are his people regardless of ethnicity. And his sword is therefore a symbol of division, dividing the true worshipers of God like Joshua, or as we heard last week, Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, from the adversaries of God who do not worship him. God is bringing judgment on the godless who reject his grace. Just think of, as I mentioned last week, we'll hear the story of Achan that's to come in a few weeks, who is an Israelite, and also most of the citizens of Jericho. But he is bringing blessing and salvation to the godly who will fall on his side. Well, to help us understand all of this message of God and his judgment and division, those who are uh, uh, on his side and those are actually his adversaries, to help us understand this uh, from a New Testament perspective, I want to look at a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read some of the verses, but if you want to, you can look in your own Bible or one of the pew Bibles and find 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is uh, fam the famous uh, reconciliation passage. Uh, starting at verse 10, we hear this. So here in the New Testament, something quite similar. Paul explains, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done. Again, our problem up ahead is that we are either on one side or another. It is not that God is either on our side or our adversaries. I mean, you might just think of um, like football teams praying, you know, before a game, you know, God be on our side and not theirs. Both teams are praying, which side is he on? It's not like that. But we are either on his side or on his adversaries' sides. So it's not that God is either on our side or our adversaries, but we are either on his side or his adversaries. Now, here is uh, what I want to say about all this. First, we should uh, take this stuff seriously. We should really take this uh, stuff seriously, even if it doesn't sit with us well. Have you given me five minutes? Have you given it five minutes? Even if it doesn't sit with us well, it is the truth according to God's word. And the message of God's righteous judgment and our unrighteousness is in the background. It's the backdrop of the entire Bible. We have some uh, really good news about all of this, though. 
if you've stuck with me and given it five minutes, we can skip ahead in the same, pa- in the same passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to verse 21, where we hear this. For our sake, God, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as he explained elsewhere in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, Jesus Christ died for the contemporary equivalent of the wayward citizens of Jericho and Canaan. Christ died for the contemporary equivalent of the wayward citizens of Canaan, and specifically, as we'll see coming up with the city of Jericho, which is us, which is you and me. That is to say, the commander of the Lord's army has laid down his sword and died instead of us. This is what we call the great exchange or the atonement. There's a very moving scene at the end of a Denzel Washington uh, film called Man on Fire. Maybe you've seen it. I mean, it's like a you know, B, B minus sort of film. But there's a very touching uh, scene at the very end in which he, he's a, a security guard in Mexico City for an American family. And Dakota Fan- Fanning, when she was a younger girl, plays the girl character and she's kidnapped you know, and held for ransom uh, because her parents are these uh, wealthy Americans. And uh, Denzel Washington is the family's bodyguard. At the very end of the film, he exchanges himself, and they go over a bridge. She walks on one side of the bridge and him on the other. And he exchanges his life for hers so that the kidnappers might take him instead. And the movie ends, spoiler alert, with him being killed. Um, He's shot because uh, he's given his life for her life. This is touching, but it's more akin to the type of exchange that Paul first describes in Romans chapter 5 when he says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Uh, such a, a, a death like the, um, the trope that this actually happens in real life where the soldier falls on the grenade you know, to shield the grenade blast with his body so that his fellow troops might die. That's the kind of death that Paul's talking about, that one might die for even a good person. But, but, Paul goes on to say, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the judge, think about it this way, the judge who's ordered the death penalty, who's given the judgment of the death penalty, has stepped down from his bench and taken off his robe and put it on the accused and died of execution instead. That's the type of exchange that we're talking about, the commander of the Lord's army laying down his sword and dying instead of us. Dying not only for us, but specifically for you. That the judge has put his robe on you and taken the judgment of execution in your place. There are two final points of application that I want to make for us about all of this. Continuing with uh, the theme of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, as a lens to view the coming destruction of Jericho that we're reading about in Joshua, 
We must not understand ourselves in the, uh, the present age as foot soldiers in the Lord's army for judgment and destruction. That isn't the case right now. Rather, until he returns again in judgment, we are instead, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians, ambassadors. As Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And then skipping on to chapter 6, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. As ambassadors, it's our role to share the great news of the great exchange, that the commander of the Lord's army has died for his enemies, and we are his enemies, and he has died instead of us. And finally, if you don't quite know whose side you're on today, I say directly to you, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I implore you, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Stop asking the commander of the Lord's army whether he's on your side or not. Instead, accept that for your sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.